You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. heard the theme that following Jesus was more than a classroom. It was a day-to-day process for those disciples from sunup to sundown, not just on Sunday. And they were literally following him so close. And some readings would say, like, to the bathroom, they would follow this rabbi. Uh, To eat, they would follow them to funerals and to every other thing, shopping and laundry and every other thing that they did because they wanted to get get saturated and covered in every particle of dust that would have been kicked up on their sandal, every moment of life. And so we're asking this question, what does it look like to follow Jesus with every single moment of life, not just the high moments or the low moments, but everywhere in between, the public moments and the private moments, the big things and the small things, what does it mean to follow Jesus with all of our life? And because it's a long book, we've divided it into segments, and we'll start our first segment today in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to open up to that, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to encourage you to read and to journal and to walk through with this because we're not going to be able to preach line by line on every single thing. But we're going to start this this segment, following Jesus will be the beginning stem of all the segments. But this first one is following Jesus from the inside out. Everybody say inside out. Inside out. That's right. Following Jesus from the inside out. The, the Sermon on the Mount is one of those famous passages of scripture of all time. Jesus teaches, and he continually has this theme where he'll say, you're doing this and this and this thing. You've observed yada, 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 such and such and such a thing. And your, your actions are, are, are saying this, but he would say, but in your heart, this is what is really going on. He, he would talk about this group of people called the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, and he would say, don't do these good things, which are good things like prayer and giving and alms and neediness and all these sorts of things that these Pharisees would do. Don't do like them, though. Don't follow their model because on the outside it looks like they're clean, but on the inside their hearts are far from their actions. He would call them this word. They were hypocrites. They would, they would talk differently than they would act. And so Jesus' teaching in this book here from Matthew 5 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is a teaching about inside-out transformation. Not just the changing of actions, but the changing of attitude. Not just the changing of, of, of behavior, but of motive, uh, of belief system. And, and what, what the author, what the writer is, is really saying here, if we dug even a little bit deeper, is that, is that in the Old Testament, the first teacher of the law, Moses, was in the desert, and he wandered, and he was tested the way that Jesus was, and, and he climbed the mountain, not Mount of Galilee, but the mountain of Sinai, and he came down with the law. And, and that law we're familiar with. If you're new in church or old in church, the Ten Commandments, that's what, that's what Moses found in, in Deuteronomy in his, in his prophetic journey and came back down and, and gave a law. But what, what the author is saying here is, is Jesus is like Moses, but he's a greater Moses than Moses would ever be because he's bringing a new law, a new commandment. In fact, he says, I come to just not abolish the law, fulfill the law and put all the law into one thing, which is love the Lord your God and, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And not just with your hands, but with your heart as well from the inside out, from the inside out. I want to change you and transform you, not just change your actions and your behavior, but change your beliefs from the inside out. This is how I want to write my law, my Torah, my covenant on your heart. And so, these are the uh, five, or rather the nine Beatitudes, the nine blessings that Jesus opens up his, this sermon with. 
And we're going to use them in, in, in couples. So we're going to actually take four weeks and look at two verses per week and use those verses as gateways, as guides to try and understand the rest of the teaching. And so verses three and four read like this. I'll read them and then I'll pray for us this morning. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus, I thank you that we are not alone and are in your presence, even in this moment. And we do not have the ability to understand uh, this scripture or much less be transformed from the inside out uh, without your presence, without your power. And so I ask now that you would um, liberate us from ourselves, God, um, help us understand where we're getting in the way and help us turn um, that we would not not just just hear your word and walk away but we would we would draw near to it you would write your law your covenant on our heart we would be transformed from the inside out in jesus name amen so i recently turned 35 january 4th was my birthday i'm an old guy now and as you're as you grow older you know hopefully i don't say wiser but you have more data to collect i suppose and more things to, to think about and, and the funny, one of the funny things that you realize as you get older is, is you can look back in the rearview mirror of your life and your past and sort of see with more clarity than, than, you, than you remembered. And uh, recently, um, it's, come to, it's come to my attention, I didn't know this all along, but it's come to more and more clarity in the rearview mirror of my attention that like I, th I thought that I, was, I grew up in this kind of uh, middle class or maybe upper middle class uh, lifestyle, but I, I kind of have realized over time that my mom, she was a grad student, and she was super smart and thrifty with her money, but we did not have a lot of money growing up, I just found out. Like, I, I'm, I'm figuring out as I tra trace back and I'm tracked back, I'm like, not everybody ate as much Velveeta cheese, if you know what I'm saying, as, as my family. Like, like Kyra had to tell me um, a couple of weeks ago, I was complaining because I was like, I don't like homemade cheese. I feel, you know, like I'm having this counseling moment. She's like, Where's, homemade cheese, excuse me, not homemade cheese, good grief, homemade pizza. Uh, I don't really like the homemade pizza thing, and she's like trying to walk me through it because I'm like, it's kind of weird and disassociated that I don't like homemade pizza. And then it traced back, and, and, and I was like, yeah, and I just don't like all the Velveeta cheese. And she was like, what? And, and I was like, yeah, you know, when you go home and make the homemade pizza, you get all the dough, and you get the tomato sauce, and you put all that Velveeta cheese on it. And I don't like all that. And she's like, Kyra's like, honey, baby, sweetie, you don't, you don't put Velveeta cheese on homemade pizza. That's not right. You didn't grow up, and that's not right. We're going to have to fix that, you know. And, and I just remember having holes in my socks as, as a kid, and, you know, mom would, like, sew up the socks. You know, like, this isn't the 1930s. It's like the 90s. And we're sewing up socks. There's just holes, and as long as they're not too big, you just keep wearing them. Like, I, I, I sort of figured out that by way of paycheck or poverty line, like we weren't as well off as we thought. I was happy, I was safe, I was protected, I had a lot of joy and a great childhood, but I, I, I didn't, uh, we didn't actually make as much money as I thought. And so um, there's actually this, this uh, author that if you're a teacher in any school, really, not just Greenville County Schools, they'll make you read this book. It's called, the Un uh, it's called Understanding Poverty by Ruby Payne. And, um, and, and so she kind of talks about that there's, there's a difference between not having money and poverty. Um, poverty is deeper than just your paycheck. Poverty is deeper than your pockets. Poverty is a culture. It's a, it's a way of thinking. It's a belief system. And so they have you read this as a teacher so that you can understand from all walks of life, you're going to be teaching rich people, and you're going to be teaching middle class people, and you're going to be teaching poor people, and they think differently. And just as much as you have different cultures and, and countries, you have different cultures and socioeconomic uh, statuses. So this is a chart that basically summarizes um, her, her learnings, her findings, and we're not going to read the whole chart, but just to point to you a few things. For example, um, when it comes to food, 
Uh, she's teaching you that when, when, when a lower class person is looking at food, they're thinking quantity. They're thinking, how much Velveeta can we put on this pizza? And, and so um, as, as affluence and as you would grow, go up the, you know, the, the uh, access to money and the ability to buy the things that you want, you get more selective. And so she's saying that in middle class households, uh, it becomes not just about quality, quantity, but it's also about quality as well. And so hopefully we graduate then from Velveeta to mozzarella. Uh, but, but they're saying that in the, in the kind of upper echelon, the highest tiers of society, it becomes not even about the taste. It becomes about the, the experience, like the presentation, the fire around it, or the sideways glass with the crazy drink that's next to it. Um, she's basically saying you can tell which class you're in by what cheese you eat, apparently, I guess. Uh, maybe you can interpret it that way. Um, but, but even, I mean, everything from shallow things like food and clothing, but all the way down to time, right? And I'm, I might pause here and say, like, there's, there's not one part of the chart that necessarily, uh, necessarily encapsulates or corners wisdom or, or corners spiritual even kingdom. If you look at the poor, for example, there's this presence that is a gift. There's this, there's just this understanding that, like, all we have is today and we don't have tomorrow. And so let's enjoy the moment and and in the middle class, there's a struggle to really do that. And so the middle class has a certain wisdom that begins with the end in mind. It has an industrious, future-minded vision that sees the future as most important. So it's not just important what you're doing now, but what are you doing now and what are you doing to get ready for later becomes the new paradigm when you were to step into a middle-class culture. And beyond that, it's... In the, in the richer, more wealthier categories of life in all different countries, she's arguing, it's not just the next 50 years or do you have a 100-year plan. There's this vision for this 500-year plan. And, and you might argue that Abraham had a 500-year plan. He might not have been rich in terms of money, but spiritually and emotionally, he had this long-range vision. Not, every, not, not any one of these things has a corner on the character market. And lastly, uh, What's kind of sad is that all of these have different burdens and barriers. All of these, all these struggle to, to understand spirituality and understand Jesus. For example, with love, if you notice, you go across the board and every single one of the different groups views love as conditional. Struggles with viewing love as conditional. It's just the matter of what makes the condition work. And so across the board, across time and across cultures, Jesus is meeting and reaching all types of people. But in, in Matthew chapter 4, there's a specific audience that we find gathered around Jesus, actually flocking around Jesus. At the very end of Matthew 4, I'll pick up, moving us into 5 to understand the context of this first sermon. It says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria. It wasn't just one local area. As a matter of fact, Syria, if you do the Google search, is 350 miles away from Galilee. There is crowds of poor people flocking to come and see Jesus and to find the meaning of the miracle and maybe even get a touch and access to these miracles. And it says they were of people of all kinds of various diseases. They were suffering in severe pain and they were demon-possessed and they were having seizures and they were paralyzed. And Jesus touched every one of them. He touched them one by one and every one of them left healed. And large crowds gathered in Galilee, Decapolis, all over the map, Carmen, San Diego, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across Jordan, that followed him. They were following him. They were attracted to him. They were drawn to him. And so this group of people were gathered around him. They just weren't every group of people. They were 
they were the people that were further on this side of the chart. They were the people that were the down and out, the outcasts. And there was a large group of people. I mean, Rome was known to be one of the greatest civilizations of all time. They gave us, you know, the most pure water and the most sound transportation and experience economic vitality in a way that no other civilization ever had. But they weren't exactly great on the mercy and on the welfare and on the poor and how you would live your life if you weren't up on the top two-thirds, or really you would say just third of the socioeconomic ladder. And so there would be these people that were broken and, and, and oppressed and hopeless and, and poor in many more ways than just their pocketbook. They were, they were, they were crippled and they were lame and they would shake under the oppression of evil spirits, and they would mutter under their breath, and they were, they were vagrant. They would move from place to place, and they didn't have roots, and they were needy. They were so needy, and they, and, they, and they found this Jesus, and they had nowhere to go, and everything to gain, and nothing to lose, and, and the poor just began to follow. They were flocking to Jesus. They, 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 would just, they, they, they wanted to see more of him from all over, from all corners of this area. It says, the scripture says, Jesus sat down and teaches them. He begins to talk about this thing called the kingdom of God, the meaning behind the miracle. He, he gets up and opens up not only the Torah, but his heart and his authority. He begins to speak and it gets everybody's attention because he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the poor, he said to this group of people. Blessed are those that, that don't have enough. Blessed are those that are on the margins. Blessed are those who don't influence society and wins friends. Blessed are those who uh, people cross across the other side of the street and, and look at as weird and point at an outcast. Blessed are the sick. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are these people that don't have enough. They're blessed. Blessing meant more than just wealth. Blessing was like joy and happiness eternal that only people that were dead or gods in the Roman or Greek tradition, only those people would experience this blessing and this, this, this rabbi who is doing things that no one has ever done and doing things no one has ever seen opens up and says, blessed are the poor. What a paradox. What a paradigm shift. They look at themselves like they would just be me. Everything around me, all the world would tell me the opposite of what this guy's saying He's coming, he's doing all these things that nobody else can do, but then he's, he's opening up and he's teaching, and his teaching are so much different than the world around me and the things that I'm used to. He says, blessed are the poor, but then he says, blessed are not just the poor socioeconomically or emotionally or relationally. Blessed are the poor, but blessed are everybody. No, not just blessed are the poor of this socioeconomic caste system, but blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, Jesus was was opening up for his very inaugural sermon for the kingdom of God to show an analogy, a picture in the room, not just for the people that were there, but the people that are in here and the people that are out there, the people that didn't hear an, an, a firsthand account and audience of this. He said, blessed are the poor, the people that are like this, but I didn't just come to save and heal you. I just didn't come to give you bread or, or multiply fish and loaves. I didn't just come to heal your body. I, I came to do a deeper work, something deeper than anything on that chart up there, something deeper than even the conversation we're having. I'm, I've come here to not just give you physical wealth or relational wealth or capital. I've come in to give you spiritual wealth in the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is, is, is saying in this sermon analogy is, blessed are the people that, that are like this group. Blessed are the poor 
Blessed are the people that are, are crippled and sick and hurting and smelly and lost. Blessed are the vagrant people like this, people that look like this on the inside. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people whose spirit, whose soul, whose inner place looks like this place. And as we know the teachings, as they go on, of course, he's not just talking to that audience. Because what do we know? He's saying that everybody on their inside looks like the audience he's speaking to on the outside. Everybody on the inside is poor in spirit. Everybody's crippled. Everybody is needy. Everybody is broken. Everybody is lost. This is theologically what we understand about the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's, he's teaching like it's not just about the physical needs he's trying to help. It's about the spiritual needs he's trying to help. And, and although he's ready, already touched a lot of the physical needs of the audience there, he's not done working yet. What he's saying is that blessed are the poor because I've come to heal them. But blessed even more than that are the poor in spirit because I've come to heal their soul and their spirit forevermore is the invitation. And so as we read the passages of this uh, beatitude, these nine blessings that Jesus teaches, we have, to, we have to get this understanding. He's not giving us a spiritual ethic, a spiritual paradigm or principle of things to do so that we can be blessed. He's giving a spiritual proclamation of what we already are. Blessed are the poor in spirit because everyone is poor in spirit. He's saying blessed is everyone. Because God is a giver and he's come to give to people that are poor, give to people that are needy, give to people that are oppressed and, and, and tremoring under the oppression of, of evil and of this fallen world and of this place. And so he would be saying to us this morning, he would say, blessed are you when you figure out that you have nothing in spirit. You're getting, you're getting closer then to God. When you find out your neediness in the depths of your soul, beneath that, even in your spirit, when, you, when, you, when, you, when life and reflection and the grace of the Holy Spirit, when, when, that, when that paradigm starts to happen in you, when you start to realize that you look like they did on the outside, when you start to get a vision that that's how you look on the inside, you're getting closer to the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you realize that your snipping at your kids is not an accident. It's not a behavior malfunction. It's showing you a poverty in you. And blessed are you when you don't ignore it because it's, it's actually showing you more of the depths of your heart rather than, than less. Blessed are you when, you when you make an action step to take your phone and, and get the security settings on it and send it to somebody else because you realize that you're not as strong and as brave and as wise as you are. Blessed are you when you realize that. Blessed are you when you take steps of weakness. Blessed are you when you, when you realize that you don't have what it takes because that's when you come to your need for God and that's where you find the kingdom of God in your life. Blessed are you when you just settle on the fact that you aren't vulnerable with others and you haven't ever been. And 
probably the, the gap between you and community is less about where you live or the culture that you're around. It probably has to do more with whether or not you let people in. Blessed are you when you start to figure that out and stop ignoring it. Those are not behavior malfunctions. They're belief crises that are happening in your life. They're broken. You look like them, but you look like them on the inside. They're broken and poor and crippled, and you may be middle class, and you may be upper class, or you may be poor class. But blessed are you when you figure out their poverty is the least of their problems and that you have just as many problems as they do because their poverty is represented on your inside, not just your outside. And so this is the summary, I think, of what I catch from this passage this morning. The Sermon on the Mount, it presents its audience as a kingdom illustration. Blessed are those who know that they are not enough without God. Blessed are those at the end of the rope. Blessed are those who are broken. Blessed are those who, who can't fix themselves, that, that yield to the need of others in God. Blessed are those people. Blessed are those people when, when they're down on their luck because life and wisdom and time is trying to teach them about the kingdom of God. They're realizing they're not enough and their world is not enough without God. And their self-dependence and self-reliance is transformed to surrender the very soil of the kingdom of God, the surrender place, the place of I'm not enough. My, my, my father, who visited from, uh, from Ohio, he, he came, um, he's going to turn 70 in August. He came for my birthday and, and uh, cooked some food. It was great. And uh, most recently, he's kind of been like downsizing like Marie Contra, Condor, whatever her name is, right? The little Japanese lady. And uh, he, he emailed me the other day, and he's like, I threw all my books away. They're worth $6 on Amazon. He was like so frustrated and sad at the same time. And he's realizing like, you know, like, we, like we're all going to realize, you know, I think time gives us this perspective, right? Like nobody asks for their golf clubs on their deathbed. That sometimes the things that we thought were going to last or matter don't matter as much as we thought that they would. And, and he's starting to realize in his own story, like those books, they don't last forever. And they're, they, they, they're not going to go on into eternity. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you figure that out. And blessed are those who mourn, who, who stay there and, and allow love to do its work in that weak place, that don't run out of that place. Like mourning, everybody mourns differently, you find out. Like when, when, somebody, when you lose somebody in your life and, and you read about mourning, mourning has several steps. It's, it's got this kind of shock factor in the very onset of when something happens. And then there's this denial and then there's this anger, and then there's this, this, this kind of uh, bargaining thing where it's like, maybe if I, if I work hard and do this, it'll all go away. And, and the final step is this, this, this surrender place. It's called acceptance, where you accept the fact. You have to accept the fact. And so this is what Jesus is saying. It's like, I, d I don't only want you to realize that you're poor in spirit. I need you to accept that you're poor in spirit. Not just like try and be poor in spirit, like go act like you're poor in spirit or go pray more or fast more. No, you don't have to do anything. You already are. You are poor and you are blessed. You are blessed because you're poor and there's nothing you can do to change it. This isn't like an ethics class about how to become more poor in spirit so you get more blessed. No, you already are poor in spirit. You're poor. You look like these people inside. If you could see inside your inner person here, this little inner ticker, that's what's going on in you. And everyone's trying to ignore it, and everyone's trying to fight it, and everyone's trying to create excuses for it. But he's saying, actually, you're your own worst enemy in this because I want you to find that, that place, and I want you to stay in that place. You are a poor spiritual person, and because of that, 
you are blessed. You're blessed. God is a, is, is a giver, and he blesses the poor. He's come to give to the needy, to the sick. And so he's saying, blessed are you Monday morning when you, when you concede the point. You, you, no, you cannot fold your clothes without Jesus. This is what he's saying. And, 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 and you know, conventional wisdom and just kind of like what I've done before and, and so on and so forth. It's like, yeah, you could maybe like get the clothes folded, but in the way that I want you to do it, in the, in the way that balances life with rhythm and rest, the, the way that helps your family and gives... No, you're doing more harm than helping if you're not doing it with me, is what he's saying. Blessed are you when you figure out you can't go organize your house without me. You can't. You can't. And, and, and you think you can. The world says that you can, but you can't. And blessed are you when you figure out you're too busy not to pray. Blessed are you when you, you figure out that, no, you're not getting by. And everyone else thinks you're getting by. And the neighbors next door make it feel like you're good because you're doing better than them. But you're not getting by. And you're not helping anyone. And you're not living into eternity if you don't need me yet. Have you learned to need me yet? Have you, have you decided in your heart that you're going to stay in the place of need? Are you continuing to wander in this illusion that you're not as poor as the people that are in Matthew 5? Everyone is poor in spirit. Everyone is from Decapolis to, to Judea. So pain and poverty, this is a C.S. Lewis quote that I stole and, and changed enough that I felt like I couldn't give him credit for it anymore because I feel like it's probably not as good anymore, but I added certain words that pain and poverty is God's compass in a spiritually lost world. They lead us in our need for God. Need is the gift that leads us to God. Need is the gift that leads us to God. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not a forepaw. It's a reality. It is a proclamation. You are needy and you are finding out now you are more needy than you once thought. And it is a friend, not an enemy. It's a compass, a guide, a light in a dark place to guide you towards God himself, the kingdom of heaven. My thought for us this week is we might read Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is what I thought we would read. Kind of skip over 5 because I feel like Matthew 6 really delves into this inner place of how we might find and live in rich poverty. I mean, he's not saying, like Ephesians says, we, we have all things in Christ. He, he holds nothing back. We have the very wisdom and revelation of Jesus, it says, and it says we have every spiritual blessing. And so... We are poor, but we are living with a rich father, inherited rich spiritual things that weren't ours. They were given to us. They were inherited not by merit, but by grace. And so what does it look like to live in this? I believe Matthew 6 is going to help us this week to live in this thing because Matthew 6 teaches us about prayer. I believe that prayer, this is what I believe is the answer, the secret of living a poor and blessed life is a life of prayer. This is what I believe is happening, is, is he's guiding us to this place where we're going to be praying. And he gives us this simple template, and we're actually going to pray today in the service just to close today in a few moments. But he, he does the Lord's Prayer, and, and so these are maybe familiar words to you. I'll read them off, but they'll be on the screen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses um, as we forgive others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These three simple practices, I think, that might help us this week and in a moment when we go and pray is this, this place of thankfulness, this place of thankfulness, of remembering him. And when we, I think that's the, that's the catalyst, is when we can see 
who he is, we remember who we are, and the whole story comes back into place, and we remember who we are and how, how poor we are and, and blessed we are at the same time because of him, and the whole relationship begins to take its, its centeredness there. And, and, and so I think that, that there's this, these concepts, these general themes like thank you. Maybe the, the prayer today in a moment is just going to be thank you, Father, for being a good father. Thank you for his character. Don't come with the laundry and let's just come with the remembrance of his character. And then, then there's a thank you for your bread and for your forgiveness. So God's not just a, a God that's up there, but he's also a God that's down here and he's giving. He's giving relational capital and he's giving back provisional capital. So God is good. He's a father and he provides. And so thank you, God. Thank you for what you've given me. I'm talking a lot about this Japanese lady, but one of the first episodes they had, this, this is a really profound moment. And I'm not endorsing Japanese meditation prayer, by the way. I do endorse uh, Jesus prayer. I think it's great. But she has them do this practice, and I think it was spiritually relevant because it understands with or without Jesus, we're still spiritual. Uh, she has them reflect, do this kind of reflection. They kind of kneel down here uh, on the living room, and, and she has them practice this this, I guess you'd call it a meditation of thankfulness for the house, okay? So she has them say, literally, personify the house, which again, the house is not a person, I don't believe that. But, uh, but she, the, the lady goes, you know, thank you for, thank you house, thank you house for protecting me. And she starts weeping. She just, just starts crying and, and they ask her about like what's going on inside of her. She's kind of like putting it, processing as she talks and she, she says something like, like, I guess I just kind of forgot to be thankful for the house. It, it, I think over these years, the stress and strain of keeping up with the house and keeping up with the kids made the house a burden more than a blessing. And I guess I just wasn't very thankful for it. I saw it as like, uh, like she was like, the house just has felt to me and it's shifted now because I've started to try to reflect on it a little bit more. But the house has kind of become this like obligation that I need to take care of rather than a gift that, that was given to me. None of that had the word Jesus in it, but we know that Jesus wasn't absent of that story. He's, he's giving us. He gave, every good and perfect gift you have is from him. It's a blessing to have a house. Those walls have kept you safe. That roof has, has kept you safe. It's not a material gap or lack. It's a spiritual misunderstanding that somehow we thought the things that God has given us is an obligation or a duty. They're a gift. And when we miss prayer, we forget that. We forget how poor we are and how rich we are in him at the same time. And prayer becomes this, this beautiful place to take advantage of a spiritual gift, a spiritual proclamation. The prayer itself doesn't make the clothes hop back into the laundry basket. The prayer doesn't change the outside first. It does. We believe that prayer moves mountains, but it moves us first. And it changes us from the inside out. How does, how does God, how does Jesus do more than Moses in a matter of minutes? The power of the Holy Spirit and prayer. The power of the Holy Spirit and prayer in your life. The power of the Holy Spirit through prayer in your life allows you to walk in this place of poor wealth. Prayer changes the circumstances, but it changes you first. Prayer is God's process for inside-out change. And I want to encourage you today, if you don't feel like you could pray for longer than 10 minutes, then pray for nine minutes. And the best way to get practice at praying is just to start praying. 
They did this experiment with like 20 kids that all made pottery designs and turned them all in at the end of the experiment. They had 10 of the kids plan out their thing and make one pot at the end of the semester, and the other 10 kids just got busy with the clay. They just started making stuff and experimenting and breaking stuff. And wouldn't you guess that at the end of that time when the competition came, all 10 of the first-ranked contestants were all the people that just tried and practiced rather than planned for it. The best way to pray is just to pray, just to pray. Get, to, get started on Monday. Get started on the way home and just begin this conversation. Thankful for his character, thankful for his provision, thankful for his protection. And when you get done with that, start again. Thank him for your, his character, that it's consistent, that it's faithful, that it's good, that it's kind. And thank him in the future for the provision that he's going to give. And thank, thank him for the protection of the danger and calamity that you don't even know of because the angels that he sent on your behalf. Get into this place of thankfulness and prayer, and I believe he will begin the process of insight out poverty, which leads to kingdom wealth. Our sermon question is simply this. Matthew 6 teaches, if you want to take a picture for the week, that thankfulness in prayer language is the prayer language of a poor and blessed person. What part of the Father's character, provision, and protection are you thankful for? We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.